0: Lord, we give this time to you and we ask that your spirit uh, would fill us and move in our hearts and stir our hearts and, and, and renew our minds, God. And, and as we get into your word, Lord, it wouldn't return void. It would uh, accomplish the work that it was set out to do, transforming us from the inside out. God, and I pray specifically as we look at uh, these two uh, men that would become apostles, uh, God, that would later be called apostles, Lord. Paul and Barnabas, uh, I pray that you would challenge us through their walk of faith, uh, their obedience, uh, their desire to to please you, uh, the reality that they embraced the calling that you placed on their life, Lord, and, and we would see how your spirit worked, through them, and recognize you can still do those things through us. Uh, so bless this time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen if you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, last week specifically, we were in Acts chapter 12. We closed out the chapter, but one thing we saw in Acts chapter 12, uh, perhaps the primary point of Acts chapter 12, is looking at the prayer life of the early church as a whole. If you recall, Herod um, Agrippa, he had James, the brother of John, killed. Then after that, he imprisoned Peter and was going to have him killed after the Passover... But the text says the church was praying. And as the church was praying for Peter, what happened? His chains were literally broken. God sent an angel and opened up the gate so that uh, Peter could escape. And he didn't face martyrdom, at least in that chapter, he didn't. And we looked at how powerful prayer is, not just in the lives of the early church, but in our life as well. The prayers that God answered then, he can still answer now. We finished off Acts chapter 12 with Paul and Barnabas and the ministry that they had fulfilled uh, in Jerusalem specifically. We'll get into that a little bit more in one second, but before we do, a little kind of preview preview summary of Acts chapter 13. We're going to see a significant event take place. We're going to see the Holy Spirit Call Paul and Barnabas to be sent out as missionaries. Okay, the title of this teaching is called out to be sent out. Called out to be sent out. Sometimes we got to be called out. By the Holy Spirit or by God or a messenger from God so that we'll actually take the steps and walk in the calling that he's placed on our lives. We're going to see the Holy Spirit do just that. He's going to call Paul and Barnabas to the work of the ministry. Well, they've already been doing ministry in Antioch, but this time specifically, he's going to call them to be missionaries, to travel around um Various areas in Israel and outside of Israel sharing the gospel and making disciples. Because that's the truth. That's the call, not just of Paul and Barnabas, but also each and every one of us. It's the call to preach the gospel and make disciples. It's not just for a minister or a pastor or a preacher or apostle or a prophet or an evangelist. It's all of our duties. Jesus told us in the Great Commission... One of his last requests before he ascended, he said to preach the gospel and make disciples. He charges every single believer to do just that. See, Jesus, he's placed specific callings on each of our lives, every single one of us. Some of you might be mothers, some of you might be wives, some of you might be husbands or fathers or children or whatever the case may be. But our number one primary goal above all things is being children of God, whether you're a son or a daughter. And as children of God, we're called to glorify our Father in heaven. How do we do that? Well, two ways is to share about his goodness and also help people, lead people to his grace and make disciples. We're going to see Paul and Barnabas do just that. Let's look at the text. Acts chapter 12, I want to finish off verse 25 again, just recap it, because it really uh, is our intro into Acts chapter 13. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Uh, Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul as they ministered to the Lord and fasted the Holy Spirit said now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them they sent them away. Let's break this down real quickly. I want to bring to your attention the fact that before Barnabas and Paul prayed about what's next, they fulfilled their ministry. They did what God had asked them to do previously before they looked ahead to the future. What do I mean? It's Acts chapter 12, verse 25. It says that they fulfilled their ministry in Jerusalem. What was that ministry? Well, it's back in Acts chapter 11, verse 30. If you want to write it down, you can. But we see that the church in Jerusalem had needs, specifically financial needs. And Paul and Barnabas, they collected resources from Am- Antioch, people gave willingly, and then they brought those resources back to Jerusalem. That's the ministry that's being referred to here in verse 25. And they completed it. They didn't start seeking the Holy Spirit for what's next until what the Holy Spirit already told them to do was completed. And sometimes, we mentioned this last week, we can get ahead of ourselves and we always want to know what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next. When we're constantly asking what's next, when the Lord's already called us to understand what's now, then it's evidence of discontentment. I'm not happy with what God's called me to now, so I'm constantly looking for what's ahead, what's in the future. He says, I got something for you right now, and until you finish this thing right now, you have no business seeking me for what's in the future. See, the Lord... He has specific things, specific roles, specific callings that he wants us to accomplish in the present. And as we're doing everything we can, putting our whole heart, soul, mind and strength into accomplishing his will in the present. Now there's the freedom. Oh, I can look to the future. Paul and Barnabas, they completed their ministry before they started seeking the Lord for the future. If you would with me, back to Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers... And then the text goes on to list some of these names. Some of these names we know more about, some less. The primary names in this text that the Holy Spirit is going to focus on is obviously Paul and Barnabas, right? But we see here in Antioch these different roles that are communicated specifically in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. We see prophets and teachers, there were other people in the church that weren't prophets and teachers, but what we see here is these were two of the primary roles that the Holy Spirit used to establish the church. Let me show you. It's Ephesians chapter four, and Ephesians chapter four, verse eleven. It says, and he, speaking of God himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul's emphasis here in Ephesians chapter four is unity. And one thing he mentions as he's trying to establish unity in Ephesus is that people were being apart. They were fulfilling their roles. And he goes to mention some of these roles, not the only roles in the church, but some of the ones with I maybe more responsibility, if you will. He talks about apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists. These aren't the only roles in the church. So many, there are so many different roles and so many different gifts that need to be used to make the church appear as one as it's called to be. But we see some of these gifts are being focused on specifically here in Acts chapter 13. Again, he mentions prophets and teachers. As I've mentioned before, just a fresh reminder, uh, prophecy is foretelling or forthtelling the Word of God. It's divinely inspired uh, speaking okay the lord gives you something to communicate specifically teaching generally is giving understanding of the word of God when i'm up here i'm generally teaching but there can be bits of prophecy and what i'm saying not everything that i'm saying is prophecy but there are certain things that are prophetic it says that in first Corinthians chapter 14 uh, that prophecy it, it gets to the heart and it reveals the things Things of the heart, sometimes when I'm communicating something, the Lord might put it on my heart that, hey, someone in the church is going through this specific thing and I won't name the person. I might not even know the person and I'll speak to a specific sin or a specific situation. And some of you come up to me after church. How'd you know that? How'd you know that about me that I was going through that? This message just spoke to me so specifically. I didn't even know who the person was. But the Lord, he's revealing things. And this is what he often does. He'll reveal specific things to specific people for specific purposes. The main objective in what I'm doing right now is teaching the word of God. But it can be intermingled with prophecy and evangelism. These roles here specifically... The prophets and teachers, these were the men, the primary communicators of the word of God by which the ministry in Antioch was established. We'll get more into spiritual gifts and specifically prophecy in more detail when we do our afterglow service um, later on this summer. So if you're more curious about that, feel free to come out. I'll continue to announce that. The text continues. Acts chapter 13 verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, says they're ministering to the Lord. This is the Greek word, leitorgio. And it technically means worship through service. They're serving the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord specifically through service. Sometimes we get the misconception that worship is simply singing praise songs before uh, a church service or before a teaching. But in the Bible, that's not technically what it is. We can worship the Lord through praise, but we can also worship the Lord through service. What I'm doing right now is an act of worship. What the ushers and greeters right now are doing are an act of worship. What Don and Richard and Jerry are doing in the back is an act of worship. Worship is more than just singing. It's technically a position of the heart. One of the other Greek words for worship is proskuneu. And it basically means to prostrate oneself before uh, on the ground, before the Lord specifically, as we talk about worship to the Lord. But technically, it's not just an external position. It's a position of the heart. My heart is in submission to the Lord. We see these men specifically, they're worshiping the Lord through service. That is the word that is being used here. And this act of worship is combined with fasting... They're serving the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. They're fasting. Why? Well, in this text specifically, they're seeking direction. You ever find yourself in a position where you don't know what to do next? Maybe you, like them, you fulfilled what God already told you to do, but you're in that kind of like, uh, I, I don't know what God wants me to do next. I feel like I did what he asked me to do in the past, but I don't know what he wants me to do in the present. And I certainly don't know what he wants me to do in the future. I encourage you, fast about it. Worship the Lord. Seek him. That's exactly what these men do. And as they fast and seek the Lord, the Holy Spirit answers. It says in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said while they were ser- serving, while they were speaking, that's when God spoke to them. This is point number one. Seek God and find your calling. Seek God and find Your calling. We don't technically seek our calling to find our calling. We seek the caller to find our calling. We seek the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13. Jeremiah 29 13. God says, seek me and you'll find me if you seek me with your whole heart. But here's the reality. When we seek God, not only do we find out who he is, we find out who we are. He reveals not just himself to us, but ourselves to ourselves. This is who you are. And through that, we're able to better understand what our calling is, what our purpose is in this life. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, your life is hidden in Christ Jesus. Your life is hidden in Christ Part of that means that the purpose of my life is hidden in the person of Jesus Christ. So as I seek Jesus Christ, guess what? I begin to understand what my calling is. I begin to understand what my purpose is. And sometimes, God's already told you what your purpose is. Sometimes He's already told you what your calling is. But we get discouraged. And we question it. And we wonder, maybe that was my calling then, but is it my calling now? Sometimes we just need to seek the Lord for a fresh reminder of what he's called us to. If we already know what that is. I go through this here and there Sometimes, God, do you still want me to teach the Bible? God, do you still want me to be a pastor? God, do you still want me to answer this calling? Luckily, the Lord gives confirmation again and again and again. But guess what I don't do? I don't go through seasons of discouragement uh, and just dwell on that and say, well, I'm not feeling like this is my calling anymore. I don't feel like a good teacher anymore. I don't like the teachings that have been coming out of my mouth lately and say I'm not going to do it anymore. No, I seek the Lord. Like It doesn't matter what I feel like. It matters what you say. It matters what you're calling. It doesn't matter how I feel about a teaching or my role or anything about that. It matters what you're telling me. So despite the discouragement, despite all these things, if we seek the Lord, we can get some clarity as to what he's called us to. Or even again, a fresh reminder of what he's already told us he's called us to. But guess what? It likely isn't going to happen if we're not seeking. If we're not asking, Lord, what are you calling me to specifically See. Saul and Barnabas, they're doing just that. Look what it says. The Holy Spirit said to them in verse 2, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Point number two, God calls us to be willing to separate. God calls us to be willing to separate. Now, I'm not saying don't take this out of context and, and leave your wife or your husband. Okay, that's not the context in which I'm saying you have to understand that Paul and Barnabas, they were building their life in Antioch. They were there for over a year at this point. You don't think that they loved their community. You don't think that they had uh, good friends. They poured blood, sweat, and tears into establishing this church in Antioch. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit says... You're going to go. You're going to leave. You're not going to be a part of this anymore. You're going to do this in other places. You don't think that was hard for them, but they were willing to do it. Why? Because they were surrendered to the Lord. You're going to leave all your comforts. You're going to leave your relationships. Yeah, you might come back at some point. We see they will, but you're going to leave all this stuff behind. You got to be willing to separate from the things that I bless you with. If you truly want to find your calling. This can be hard, but this is evidence of something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 14. I'll read it for you. The text is about the cost of discipleship, and Jesus, he closes it out like this. In Luke chapter 14, verse 33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. If we're not willing to forsake all, he says, you're not worthy to be my disciple. What is he saying? You got to put me first in everything and anything that I bless you with possessions, people, community, regardless of what it is, you got to hold it with an open palm. Why? Because it's his before it's ours. And he can say, hey, I want you to step away from this for a while because I want you to focus on this thing. But as long as I'm grasping the things that God's given me with a closed fist, guess what I miss out on? His calling. I'm so caught up with this that I'm not seeing what he's trying to do over here. There has to be that willingness to surrender. I definitely don't think this was an easy decision for Paul and Barnabas emotionally, but spiritually, they knew it was what they had to do. They were surrendering all of their hard work for a new work. All the work they put into Antioch, you're just going to leave it behind. Antioch's going to be fine. There are other prophets and teachers there. But that's a lot to ask. But guess what? The Lord isn't afraid to ask it. And he asks just that of them. And they follow through. Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. As they're seeking the Lord, as they're serving the Lord, as they're worshiping the Lord, as they're praying to the Lord, they get clarity as to what God has called them to in this next season. Now, we don't know for sure what Paul and Barnabas were praying about, but we see this prayer was according to uh, God's will, right? And based on the lives of Paul and Barnabas, we can surmise generally something, uh, the, the topic of this prayer. Let's just say, uh, we know that Paul and Barnabas know that they're called to be ministers of the gospel, right? They know that they're called to preach the gospel and make disciples. So this prayer could, the text doesn't tell us, could have been something like, God, we know you've called us to preach the gospel and make disciples. We know that's your will for our lives. Uh, we just want to know where, and, and to whom are we supposed to do this and as they're praying this prayer according to God's will already knowing God's heart he calls them to this specific work this was a work that God had prepared for them before the foundations of the earth just as Ephesians 2 10 tells us that are works that God has prepared for us before the foundations of the world but guess what we're gonna miss him if we're not seeking God to give clarity as to which are from him and, and which ones aren't. Paul and Barnabas sought God with the heart of surrender and God revealed to him, them the works that he would prepared for them since the foundations of the earth. And we see the Holy Spirit sends Paul and Barnabas out, what, two by two. There are a lot of parallels um, in this passage uh, and in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the disciples and he sent them out two by two. Okay. see the Holy Spirit and Jesus are on the same page. Why? Because they're separate persons, but it's the same God. They're completely unified. They never disagree. Okay. There's no disagreements with the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. And he sends them out two by two. Why? Well, several reasons. Um, accountability. Uh, to protect them from pride. If one goes out and he does all these amazing things, then the one might think, oh, I did these amazing things. He says, one no, it's two of you that did these things, and I did them through you. There's several reasons why God sent them out two by two, but this was part of the calling. They weren't called to do it alone. They were called to do it together. Acts chapter 13, verse 3. Then... Having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. See what it says here? It doesn't say that Paul and Barnabas had a great idea to go preach the gospel in a bunch of different places and they just did it. It doesn't say they sent themselves out. It says the Holy Spirit sent them out. And sometimes I see in ministry, sometimes people come up with really great ideas and they try to fulfill that great idea. But it wasn't the Spirit leading them to fulfill that great idea. It was just a great idea. Yeah, he wants us to preach the gospel and make disciples But if we want to be successful, it's got to be the Spirit sending us. It's got to be the Spirit nudging us. And we see Paul and Barnabas, they will be successful because it's the Spirit that sent them. It's the Spirit that's leading them. This isn't an emotional decision. It's a spiritual decision. But look what they do here. As the Spirit sent them, it says they went down to Seleucia. They responded with willingness and obedience It's point number three, be willing to answer the call. Be willing to answer the call. What if they said, "Mm, Holy Spirit, I don't like those locations. I'd rather just chill here in Antioch. Yeah, I prayed, God, your will be done, but I didn't really mean it. You know, I I, I wanted to know, but I just wanted to know so that I could think about whether I wanted to do it or not. No, the Spirit calls them to go to these different places and they submit to it. Why? Because when they prayed again, it was that heart of surrender and willingness. So they move as the Spirit tells them to move. Similarly, when Jesus called the disciples, at least four of them, uh peter andrew james and john and luke chapter 5 we see they were in the middle of fishing and it says in luke chapter 5 verse 9 for he and all who were with them were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken and so also were james and john the sons of zebedee who were partners with simon and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed them. Well, Jesus came to your work and said, you're going to stop doing this, and now you're going to start fishing for men, right? All my livelihood, no, it's behind me. Yeah, surrender all of that. That's what he said. They forsook all and followed them. They had to be willing to do that. This is what God's called me to do. Quit fishing for fish and start fishing for men. And the disciples were obedient because they were willing to answer the call. God doesn't force us to answer the call. He calls us and he gives us the opportunity as to how we respond. So, um, you ever get a phone call from a number you don't recognize? Yeah. You ever get phone calls from salesmen? Like they call your cell phone now. Like that's crazy, right? It's getting worse and worse. You ever get the call, um, uh, I've had this happen to me a couple times. I had to learn the first time. You ever get a call uh, from someone that says, hey, this is an attempt to collect a debt. And if you don't pay in the next 24 hours... We're calling the cops, so the cops are going to come to your house. Has anyone ever had that? I've had that happen to me a couple times. I'd have figured it out and looked up. Oh my gosh, this is just a scam, right? Um, anyways, the point is, there are certain calls that you just don't want to answer, right? There's certain people that call you. Uh, maybe it's a, 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 an uncle or an aunt. They, they're kind of annoying. Maybe it's a friend that you just don't really get along with. And when you look at your phone and you see that call from that person or it's a number you don't, No. What do you often do? Either decline it or just wait for them to leave you a message. But on the other side, there are certain people that call you, hopefully... Uh, that regardless of what's going on okay uh, you generally always pick up the phone when they call you right maybe it's your wife maybe it's your husband hey unless I'm like in doing something super important right now I'm gonna pick up the phone if Elizabeth calls me I pick up the phone I never hit the decline okay um, there's certain situations I'm in a meeting or whatever I'll text her hey I'll call you right back there's certain people I always pick up the phone why because they're important to me maybe it's parents for you could be friends could be a spouse could be a child child what's my point depending on who's calling us determines whether we're willing or unwilling to pick up the phone now i'm talking about spouses and family members and friends what happens when Yahweh's calling you when that phone's ringing i'm not saying this actually happens spiritually that phone's ringing it's going yahweh 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 and we look at the phone what do we do we hesitate are we willing to pick it up what's he going to say what's he going to tell me to do It shouldn't even be a question as to whether or not we pick up the phone call. But sadly enough, sometimes we treat Yahweh like one of those salesmen. Sometimes we treat Yahweh like that phone number we don't recognize. Why? Because we don't know what he's going to say. And we don't know if we're actually willing to do what he's going to ask us to do on the other line. It's God calling us. Who are we to not pick up the phone? It's our creator. It's our father. There shouldn't even be the option that I'm not picking up. We got to be willing to answer the call because who's calling? So they answered this call. They went. And when they arrived, it says in verse five, in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. That's point number four. We're all should have capitalized all we're all called to spread the word every single one of us we're all called to spread the word They knew what they were called to do, preach the word and make disciples. It was where? Okay, now it's in Salamis right now. And they'll travel to different places in Cyprus and uh, other areas as well. But they had no doubt. They knew what God had asked them to do because he had asked them to do it way long ago. It was one of the Lord's uh, last requests before he ascended. He said in the Great Commission to preach the gospel and make disciples. That charge wasn't just for the disciples. That's for all of his followers, past, present, and future. It's the responsibility that we have as children of God to tell people about our father. When we don't tell people about our father, if you never talked about a certain family member, if you never talked about your daughter, or you never talked about your brother, or you never talked about your husband and your wife, what would people think? They wouldn't think that you had that individual in your life, right? They wouldn't think, oh, they probably don't have a daughter. I've never heard them talk about it. I've never heard them talk about, never heard her talk about her husband. She must be single. That's the reality. Our relationship with God should produce that desire to tell people about, man, this is who my father is. He's good. He's gracious. He's forgiving. He's loving. This is the God that I know and I want you to know him. How selfish would we be to not want to tell people about our heavenly father? They recognize this. So they preach the word. They spread it. This is such an important part, a pivotal part of our faith, and I bring it up all the time because it's so crucial, and we see it all over the Bible telling people about jesus we'll have an opportunity um, this saturday when we go out to the farmer's market um and i'll ask you i'm not going to drag you i'm just going to ask uh, as many people as i can fit in my car probably so me and four other people do you want to go with me and you can pray about this all week okay i'm gonna ask this question who wants to go with me to the farmer's market to pass out invitations and share the love of jesus with people I'm not going to drag you. Why? Because it doesn't say Jesus drugged the disciples out there and made them share the gospel. He sent them. He said, hey, this is what I'm calling you to do. And they wanted to do it. There was a desire. There was a passion. There was a zeal. The Lord gives us opportunities to do this all the time. The opportunity that's taken advantage of here, look where it's at. It's in the synagogues of the Jews. So they went to multiple synagogues. We see this is Paul's primary method of getting the gospel out there. Why? Because he had a captive audience. We'll talk about the order of the synagogue um... Uh, function later but uh, basically you had in the beginning a time of prayer like an intro prayer then there was a reading from the Torah one of the first five books of the Old Testament uh, and then there was a reading from the prophets and then after that they gave any able-bodied teacher the opportunity to communicate the word so what do we see here these people are expecting to hear the word They're not expecting to hear the gospel. They're not expecting to hear hear the fulfillment of the word, but they're expecting the Old Testament to be taught. So Saul, using his brain, using his knowledge, he says, let's go to the places where people are expecting to hear the word. And I'm just going to take the word and I'm going to share the gospel through the Old Testament. There's wisdom in this. He took advantage of a captive audience. Now, we don't really have a lot of this today. I mean, you go to church, you're expecting to hear a message, but I'm not like just giving anyone and everyone an opportunity to share the word. But we can look at this and pull some stuff from it. The early church, church, they took advantage of captive audiences. So where in your life do you have a captive audience? Could be a cashier. They're probably not going to walk away from the register if you're sharing the gospel with them could be a store that you go to, could be a coworker, could really be anything. The point is though, they took advantage of the captive audiences and they were very fruitful in their ministry. So we see Paul and Barnabas, they're not alone. It says that John was also their assistant. This is not the Apostle John. This is John Mark, who we've been mentioning. He's going to come up again later on in this text. As we mentioned last week, he is the one that is believed uh, to be a scribe of Peter and wrote the Gospel of Mark. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 6. Now, when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So they're traveling around. They get to this place called Paphos. It was... Um, on the west coast, uh west coast near uh Cyprus. So they're just bouncing around from city to city sharing the gospel because that's what the Lord had asked them to do. This specific place, much like many of these places, uh, is ridden with idolatry. Paphos, the um, primary god that they worshipped, uh Roman god Venus, who was the goddess of love. So we see, much like other areas, rampant uh idolatry um running rampant in so many of these areas, and they're going to point to the true God, okay? But this isn't just an idolatrous place. We see this individual named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus, it means son of Jesus, okay? Jesus wasn't the only Jesus. There was other uh, Jesuses out there, uh, but this guy we see is a sorcerer. Now, We've talked about sorcerer, sorcery in the past. Um, the Greek word used here is basically he uh, performed different types of magic tricks. Uh, this is likely rooted in some dark demonic forces. Uh, we don't know what kind of stuff he actually was able to do. But this guy, as the text tells us, is a sorcerer and he's certainly not serving the Lord. But he's not alone. He's with this other guy. This other guy named Sergius Paulus says he was an intelligent man. He was a proconsul. A proconsul, uh, was a man of authority. They were responsible for an entire province. So not just a city, but an entire area. This guy is highly influential, but he's not just influential. It says he's intelligent. Not to ruin the story, but this guy's going to get saved. It shows us that intelligent people still can get saved. You can't be too smart for the gospel. Christianity is for the simple-minded and for the intellectual. It doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. The Bible, the Word of God can meet you right where you're at. It's not just foolish, fairy tale type faith. Some of the smartest people I know are Christians. Actually, all the smartest people I know are Christians. If they're not, they're not very smart, right? But this is the reality. This guy is an in- intellectual. But this other guy our Jesus, also referred to as Elymas. Look at verse uh, 8. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. See, when we answer the calling that God's placed on our life, just as Paul and Barnabas did, what can we expect? We can expect opposition. He's withstanding. He doesn't want them sharing the gospel because it's not the power that he accesses. He accesses some dark energy, some demonic force, and this is the power of God. But we can rest assured, when we purpose to do what God's calling us to do and answer the calling that he's placed on our life, there will be opposition. It, it, it will be difficult. There will be obstacles. But it's also encouraging because that's also, uh, uh, uh the, the obstacles in and of themselves are an encouragement often that we're walking down the right path. Okay? If there's things coming in my path and the Bible says, Jesus promised you will have tribulations. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution if I'm seeing those things in my life. maybe I'm doing the right thing. That's exactly what's happening with Paul and Barnabas. They answer the call and this man withstands them. Now, this is a dangerous spot to be, not for Paul and Barnabas, but for this sorcerer. He's literally standing between God and man. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Jesus Christ. If any other man tries to stand between God and man, And man, specifically man getting to God, huge problems there are serious consequences for that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 verse 6 in Matthew chapter 18 verse 6 he says for those people it'd be better if a millstone was uh, hung around their neck and they were thrown the thrown in the ocean for a Jew um, dying by drowning was like one of the worst punishments you could ever have it wasn't even one of the ways they actually killed people so Jesus saying this would have been like oh oh my gosh, I would rather get beheaded. I don't want to drown. He said, it'd be better for them if that happened. Causing one of my little ones to stumble, standing between me and a potential child of God. This is what Elemas is doing. He's in a dangerous spot. Look what happens, verse nine. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all uh, righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Let's break this down. Saul says, who is also called Paul. We mentioned this back in Acts chapter 9. Some say that God changed Saul's name to Paul. That's not what the text indicates. And in fact, culturally, um, especially during that era, because Rome was the authority and Saul is a Roman citizen, people were often given dual names. It'd be kind of like you have you guys have middle names. People have middle names, most people still have middle names, right? Um, so my middle name is is Austin Tanner Austin Okay. Uh, so uh, Paul he has two names one is his Hebrew name Saul which means uh, inquired of or prayed for goes back to King Saul he was asked for by the people and he wasn't the king that the people or he wasn't the king uh, that God wanted he was the king that the people wanted uh, but this name Saul is his Hebrew name Paul would have been his Roman name and we see from this point Forward, uh, Saul is referred to as Paul. Why? Well, he's going to be speaking to a Roman proconsul, and we also discussed in the past that Saul of Tarsus, Paul, was called to the Gentiles. Peter, his primary people group, was the Jews. Paul, his primary people group, was the Gentiles. So he's using his Roman name, being all things to all men, so that by all means some might. Get saved. Saul, who is also called Paul, says, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. He literally said, your father is the devil. Okay, I don't recommend you doing this when you share the gospel with someone. If the Lord puts it on your heart, okay. But uh, this is probably going to stop the conversation right there. Okay, you son of the devil. It's true, uh, but, you know, sometimes uh, we got to be a little careful in how we communicate. What's interesting about this is Jesus said something very similar to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8... Jesus says in verse 44, You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus called the Pharisees sons of devil. John, later on, in 1 John chapter 3, he'll tell us you're either a son of the devil or you're a son of God. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, He says, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning for the purpose. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Look at verse 10. And this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. He says, if you're not following God, if you're not loving God and loving your brother, then you're not of God. What does it take to be a child of God? John chapter 1 tells us by believing in Jesus Christ, by believing the gospel, that Jesus died, that he's buried, that he rose again the third day. From believing in that, sincerely believing in that, we become children of God. But the reality of it is, as we were born into this world with this carnal nature, we're born under the authority of Satan. He's referred to as the God of this world. So what John is getting at is basically who we follow determines who our father is. What we do will reveal who we're actually following and who our father is. This guy is trying to prevent the proconsul from entering into a relationship with Jesus. He's trying to lead him astray. And because of these things, Paul tells him, you're a son of the devil. This is a type of antichrist, if you will. He's leading the people away from the reality of who Jesus was. And it says that Paul, in verse 11... He says, "And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the Son of a t- uh, Son for a time. And immediately, a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. This is interesting. Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, strikes this man with blindness." oh, how I wish I had this gift. When people say bad stuff about Jesus or prevent people from from getting close to God that I can just say, blind, you're blind, all right? You just think about that for a little while uh, before you talk bad about Jesus. It's probably a reason why I don't have this. Um, many people that I run into, I'd end up making them blind. Um, But Paul, he had this gift for this moment and it actually worked. But what's interesting about this is that Paul uh, wasn't making something happen to a man that he didn't walk through himself. You remember in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, what happened? He was blinded for three days. He, He was blind. He couldn't see. Basically, what was happening to this sorcerer is that God... Was allowing his spiritual state to manifest itself physically. He was blind to the truth of Jesus. So he says, you're blind to the ultimate reality of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to make you blind physically. It was probably in hopes that he would recognize, wow, this, this is unfortunate being blind physically. And he'd recognize that he's been blind spiritually his entire life. Paul knew that blindness had a power in recognizing our spiritual blindness can wake us up to the reality of who Jesus was. doesn't say that that happened with the sorcerer, we don't know. But the text continues, Acts chapter 13, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw... What had been done being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is interesting. The same gospel that blinded the sorcerer opened the eyes of the proconsul. They heard the same words, uh, and and one ends up getting blinded because Paul basically cast that curse on him, if you will. And this other one, he he's his eyes are open. He recognizes that the truth of Jesus is a reality. That Jesus truly is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. It says he was astonished at his teaching. This wasn't just Him seeing a miracle and believing. says he was astonished at the teaching. It was the combination of the word of God and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just a miracle and it wasn't just teaching. It was both of these things put together. I hear people say this and they've actually said this to me personally. uh, If God just did a miracle in front of me, if he showed up right here, if he did something, uh, then I would believe in him. You're a liar. You wouldn't believe in him. Why? Because it's not just seeing miracles, it's about believing the word of God and who Jesus is. We see throughout the Bible that people saw many miracles and didn't believe. In John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, people keep following him. And he says, you just follow me because of the food. No, 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 we don't follow you just because of the food. He says, okay, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Then they walked away. They left him. They saw the miracle, but they didn't believe the gospel. They didn't have spiritual discernment to understand that the words that Jesus was speaking were spiritual words. He was talking about having a relationship with him. Even in the Old Testament. All throughout Exodus, right? The Hebrews, they saw miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. It says they didn't trust God. They didn't put their faith in God. They didn't actually trust him. They didn't have a relationship with him. So when people say, if God would just do a miracle in front of me, I say, baloney, that's not true. Yes, sometimes God will give us the opportunity to see a miracle or see a manifestation of the Holy Spirit and combine with the word of God. That's a powerful experience. That's what happened here with the proconsul. He was astonished at the teaching, but he also saw the power of the Holy Spirit displayed. Paul will talk about this later in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this combination verse 4 He says And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's not just the words that we say, but the power in which we say them. Uh, Now, Paul, he did many miracles, but this text isn't implying that you better do a miracle to solidify the word of God. The word of God in itself is a miracle. But, we also see that there should be some sort of demonstration of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have to be a miracle. The primary operation of the Holy Spirit is to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, our testimony, our lives that have been changed as a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And I found for myself personally, those are some of the most productive conversations I have with people. When I'm able to share the gospel connected with my testimony to say, hey, this is who I was and this is who I am and I'm far from perfect, but I'm better than I used used to be i'm demonstrating that the power of the spirit is legitimate it's been the gospel and the power of the spirit that has changed my life forever when people see that they have enough evidence to believe the proconsul he saw this he saw he heard the word of god he saw the power of the spirit demonstrated acts chapter 13 verse 13 now when paul and his party set sail From Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. From this point forward, we see Paul's name is mentioned first. I keep saying Paul and Barnabas because that's what I'm used to. Uh, But it's been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Saul. Uh, Now Paul's mentioned first, Paul and his party, and Barnabas is still there. Something changed here. Through this conversation and the ministry that happened during these this first missionary journey, uh, Paul basically became the established leader. Okay, now he's the established leader. We'll see his name first uh, mentioned first from here on out. But we also see another character here. John Mark says he departed and returned to Jerusalem. Now we don't know why John Mark bailed out on Paul and Barnabas um, and departed to Jerusalem. We know it wasn't a good thing. Why? Because uh Paul gets upset about it and talks about it later in Acts chapter 15. He didn't agree with John Mark leaving them in the midst of this journey, and that's how that split with Paul and Barnabas happens. So we don't know for sure why, okay? Paul doesn't think it was an honorary decision. We can only speculate. And this is an assumption. This is only an assumption. I believe a lot of it was rooted in fear. We see the early church being persecuted left and right. We see almost every time Paul preaches, there's persecution. John Mark, maybe he didn't continue on in his calling because of fear. Now, whether that's true or not for John Mark, I know it is for many people. A lot of times people are just afraid to answer their calling. They're, they're afraid of failure. They're uh, afraid of not measuring up. They're afraid of you name it. Uh, uh, a, a fear of man. I'm, a, I'm scared of what people might think about me. But fear is from the enemy. It's not from the Lord, and he uses it. The enemy uses fear to rob us from the calling that God's placed on our life. Now, whether or not John Mark left because of fear, I don't know for sure, but I can tell you I know many people that have walked away from their calling because they were afraid. Acts chapter 13, verse 14. But when they departed from Perga... They came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogues uh, sent to them saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So, again, traveling uh, to some new locations, they departed Perga. They came to Antioch in Pisidia. Okay, this isn't the same Antioch that they planted that church and were there teaching for over a year. This is a different Antioch. There were several locations referred to as Antioch. That's why the text makes it clear. This is Antioch in Pisidia. This is about 130 plus miles inland. This is uh, rather, it's not uh, even that close to the Antioch uh, that was in uh, that was mentioned in Acts chapter 11 in the beginning of Acts chapter 13. If you recall, uh, remember this Antioch name. It was a family name. It came from Antiochus, the previous rulers of Greece. Uh, before Rome took over, they would name locations after themselves. Okay, Like Alexandria, whatever the place is. You know, people like to name stuff after themselves. So that's what it is here. Uh, it's a different Antioch. It's not the same place. They're still on their missionary journey. They'll come uh, back to Antioch in the next chapter. So again, they go into the synagogues. Remember that method that they had. And as they're in the synagogue and the synagogue's uh, walking through its daily operation, uh, a man comes up and he says, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. He gives Paul and Barnabas and those with them an opportunity to preach the word. And look what happens in verse 16. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and those who fear God listen." He seized the opportunity. He stood up and embraced his calling. This is the fifth and final point, short one. Embrace your calling. He didn't shy away. He didn't say, I'm not feeling it today. This Sabbath, you know, I'm a little tired. I'm a little irritable. I don't really want to do this right now. He didn't say any of that. He just stepped up and did it. Why? Because he knew he was called to do it. We all have a responsibility to embrace our calling, to make the most of it. See, God, He calls us to various roles. He entrusts us with various things, but we have a choice as to whether or not we make the most of it or whether or not we bury it in the ground. As we see in Matthew chapter 25, just read a couple of these verses real quick. Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents, verse 15 And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug it in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Gives different people different talents according to their ability. He gives one five. He invested. He gets five more. The other one, he gives two. He invested. He gets two more. And then the one who had one, he buries it in the ground. This is our responsibility. And that's the Lord's point. That's his charge. I've entrusted you with certain things, certain roles, certain responsibilities, certain callings. And you choose what you want to do with it. I call you. I gift you. But you can either invest this gift by advancing the kingdom or you can bury it in the ground. But guess what? There's going to come a day where he comes back and we got to say, well, Lord, uh, this is what I did with your talents, or this is what I didn't do. I know you gave me this thing, and you called me to this thing, but I didn't want to do anything with it. Why? Well, I was afraid. That was what it was with this guy. He was afraid to invest his talent. I get being afraid. In fact, Paul, he tells Timothy, and this is Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 16 to 17. Uh, he tells Timothy to stir up the gift that is in him. Why do you think he's got to tell Timothy to stir up the gift? We see evidence in Timothy's life between Acts and some of the epistles that Timothy was timid, okay? Paul wouldn't have to tell someone that was boldly operating what God has called him to do, to stir up the gifts, to use the things that God called you. This is an exhortation. This is a charge. Hey, you need to use the stuff that God's given you. Use the gifts. Stand in, stand up for the calling that he's placed on your life. Sometimes we've got to be reminded of that, to stir up the gifts, to use the things that God's given us, to not bury them in the sand, because he's given them to us for a reason. And when we bury them in the ground, it's like spitting in his face. I don't want what you gave me. But he gave it to us for a specific purpose, for us and for the people around us. I understand struggling with that. Embrace my calling, fear of the calling, all of it. There's times where I'm afraid. There's times that I'm scared. There's not a time that I come up here to communicate that I'm not nervous. I'll tell you There's never a time that I'm just like, oh, yeah, I got this in the bag. I'm always nervous. There's always some measure of fear. But the Bible says perfect love cast out fear. And I can either give in to the fear, or the emotions or the doubts or the distractions or whatever the case may be. Or I can say, no, Lord, you called me to this. I'm going to embrace it and I'm going to make the most of it. And I might not, not feel the best about this specific teaching. Or this specific calling. But you've called me to do it. And that's your responsibility. But you give me a responsibility. And you call me to be willing to answer. You call me to embrace. To make the most of it. To give it everything I got. That's our responsibility. God has called each of us to specific things. But we choose how we respond to the calling. Let's pray. We thank you for the truth of your word, we thank you for the examples uh, that you give us through Paul and Barnabas, uh, Lord, and and how they just willingly were so surrendered to you, God. They sought you. You answered them. They responded, uh, God. And, and man, their lives were, were filled with joy. They were filled with the Spirit, the text tells us. God, because they were doing exactly what you asked them to do. Uh, Lord, and I pray that we would be people like that. Maybe we won't be as powerful preachers as Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Maybe we're not called to be missionaries all over the world, uh, but you have us in this world as missionaries, God, because this world is not our home. Lord, so I pray that you would remind us of that, that our time is short, uh, and there's a lot that you want to do in and through us in this short time we have. I pray that we would be willing to embrace whatever you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.